Hi everyone, Emily here. I'm so excited to talk about our partnership with Deskrits. Deskrits is truly the insider's guide to the ARE. Made by two young architects who recently passed their exams, the book breaks down all six exams into topic outlines and reading lists with specific pages to study from outside resources. For me, the hardest part of the ARE was figuring out what to study. I've used Deskrits personally as a study guide for my last four exams and couldn't recommend it enough. It's easy to follow, graphically pleasing, which is very important to us design people, and it's very thorough, not vague at all. My personal favorite are the Deskrits study sheets that cover objectives of each test in a super manageable way. The sheets only cover key topics, so you don't have to worry about sifting through any excess fluff. If you're interested, go to Deskrits.com and use code OPP15 for 15% off. Happy studying! Hey everyone! Hey everyone, I'm Emily. And I'm Maria, and this is the Open Plan Podcast. We're excited to have you here. Join us in navigating life and architecture as young professionals tackling career, education, social lives, and everything in between. Keep up with us on Instagram at Open Plan Podcast. So now let's get into it. Hey there. This is part two of our conversation with Rashida. If you haven't listened to part one yet, go back and listen to our previous episode and then come back for part two. Now enjoy this incredible conversation. Bringing it back to education, um, and we've been talking about, you know, what we think needs to change, um, particularly in architecture and the profession, starting in school, what we think needs to change. I did want to ask, um, you know, you mentioned that you were drawn to be an educator based on your experience and you kind of returned to that after practicing. Um, what do you recommend, I guess, for someone who is interested in teaching in architecture? What are some steps they could do to like kind of get their foot in the door or see if it's for them? And, you know, it could even be like your own experience and how you, you know, first entered as well. So, Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing I would do if you're interested in teaching is reach out to the architecture schools in your area and let them know that you're interested in teaching and ask to be invited to reviews. That's a really kind of low stakes uh, way to uh, connect with the academic community in your area and to also um, just start to network. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it sounds, um, pretty simple and in some ways it is, but, um, you know, you start, if you start serving on reviews and you're, you're basically participating in the culture of, you know, critique and review of student work, um, that is often the way that, um, educators look to, oh, kind of identify talent. Oh, that person was on a review and was really, you know, constructive in their response to students and had a way of approaching student work that was accessible. Um, and then when there's an, an opening, you know, you're already in the consciousness of uh, administrators that are making that decision. I think also, you know, sending an email to, you know, the chair director of the program and saying, you know, here's my CV and, you know, an abbreviated portfolio or a link to your website. And just expressing interest in, in teaching uh, is important. So don't just ask to be on reviews and hope that they're going to figure out 
you also want to teach, but just be, as, as um, we were saying earlier, just be really upfront about your desire to start teaching. Um, I think it's also, um, most people don't start teaching, you know, full-time, they start teaching part-time mm-hmm. and um, transition into a full-time opening. Um, but academia is its own, has its own kind of set of, of um, it has its own structure, let's say it that way. Um, that is very different than, uh, than practice. So um, I think there are, there is definitely a role for practitioner educators in every program mm-hmm. and there are roles for full-time educators, there are roles for teaching faculty, for research, research faculty. So, you know, everyone that is thinking about be- becoming an educator also went to school. So yeah. I would reach out to um, your, your faculty, your, your mentors, and, and talk to them about your um, desire and your interest and what these different, you know, um, types of faculty are. Um, mm-hmm. Get some advice about, you know, what your trajectory might be. Are you really interested in a full-time academic career? And, and there are so many different paths um, to start into full-time academia. Or are you interested in um, really kind of keeping a foot in academia and a foot in practice? There are a mm-hmm. lot of um, firm principles, for example, that teach and teach for, for you know, most of their careers. Um, and it is complementary to their practice. So there are these different models. Right. Um, and I think just starting to, we probably, that's another, <laughs> there's so much work to be done, uh, but that's another uh, need. Uh, we need to to start to talk to students when they're still students about what an academic career in architecture looks so like. Yeah. The different pathways are uh, to enter uh, academia so that you don't have people that are like, I'm kind of interested in academia, but they don't ever no, or it takes a while to figure out how to get started. Yeah. You know, I think what you were mentioning about, you know, either being volunteering for reviews or expressing your interest in being on reviews and then just reaching out and simply saying, you know, I am interested in teaching. I think it almost sounds like so obvious to do that. But at the same time, I think people are intimidated to do that and they don't know if there's all these other things you have to do. And I know I was. Um, and I think it comes back to what you were saying that's just not talked about during our education, that that is an option. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate because it helps by alerting the younger generation that they can do this. It kind of overturns the faculty a little bit. You know, it's just I've noticed that, it's, you know, and that's fine. There's some professors that just, you know, keep going on and on and like stay there. But it's like, you know, you want the you want there to be different life breathed into the faculty. And I think a lot of that comes down to. It, the unknown of entering architecture academia and yeah unless once again in architecture unless you take yourself there but yeah yeah absolutely and and our i mean academia in general not just architecture but is actually it thrives through new ideas that's what mm-hmm. we that's what we do that's what we're we're called to do and we need continual um perspectives, new perspectives to uh, speak on the issues 
through through a, a new lens generationally mm-hmm. uh, to really kind of continue to to probe and to press and to to challenge you know mm-hmm. what was the norm shouldn't be the norm right. you know like in another 10 years that needs to to continually change and ideas that are put forward histories that are you know uh documented um need to also be challenged and you know um so i i i think you know finding um your confidence to say you know i can i can do that and i want to do that you know like there's somehow um ambition and i think this i you know i don't like to fall into gender stereotypes but i think it can be more challenging for women um, because of just these kind of gender norms that are that exist within society mm-hmm. that somehow like being ambitious um, is is a, a, a trait that is more often um, considered like a negative trait for like bossy or overbearing right. or yeah yeah, right. yeah. Exactly. you know a, a man is is really um, his ambition is is, kind of understood mm-hmm. and received differently than a woman's am- ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it shouldn't be that way. Yeah. So we can be, um, and, and maybe I'm just speaking for myself, uh, more uh, timid about expressing the things yeah. that we want. And I think, you know, challenging that kind of negative voice that might be holding you back and actually saying, I want to do this and I can do it. Mm-hmm. I think I can do it. I think I have something to contribute. Like for me, uh, my husband was the person who was not going to allow that desire uh, for me to be an educator. I mean, he just was like, okay, so you're working on your licensure, you know, you're doing, you're kind of doing these things, but when are you going to return to that dream of becoming an educator? And he believed in me before I believed in myself. And he continued to prod and say, Mm -hmm. you know, like if we were at like a firm party, I think when I got into academia first, I taught um, part-time at Drexel and there was an event at the firm that I was working for. And the director of Drexel's program was there. And my husband was like, go talk to him (laughs) and tell him that you want to teach. And so I did. And he hired me to teach part time, mm-hmm. you know, but it was, I didn't have at that time, even the, the confidence and I would not have, mm-hmm. you know, just gone up to him at that, you know, social event, you know, that kind of networking event or whatever mm-hmm. to introduce myself uh, without the prodding. Um, yeah. I love that story. I think it's so important to, I mean, you're fortunate if you have that support around you, you know, to have that person pushing you, especially for women, because, you know, I think that is so relatable. It's definitely not just you. Marie and I always talk about our imposter syndrome and also like, Mm -hmm. you know, not asking for the same things as our male coworkers would, you know, the same confidence. So um, I think that's something that our husbands are both really big on as well, like constantly prodding. Like I 
half the things that's happening, not half the things, I, I will take credit myself, but a lot <laughs> of the things is because he's been pushing me just from the beginning. I remember I used to be like, no, you just don't do that in architecture. That is not architecture. Like, not we are supposed to be t- treated yeah. like dirt. But like, <laughs> like, he's like, no. And he, of course, you know, they both have the lens of being outside the industry too. So it's a little bit of that, but you don't need that necessarily. But yeah, I think it's it's great to have someone advocating for you too, for sure. Yeah, and there's like that s- statistic of like how men typically will go for jobs. They will apply for jobs they're underqualified for and women mm-hmm. will apply right. for stuff they're overqualified for because they don't <laughs> think that they can do the one that they are actually qualified for. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think like we're both also like how how what's your opinion, I guess, on being in the middle of the licensing process and having a potential like opportunity to teach or the desire to teach like um i think me and my my brain i like to compartmentalize so i'm like okay i i probably should get my exams done first and then i will like reach out for teaching opportunities and i'll feel like i'm good enough to be teaching because i have a license so what's what are your thoughts on that i'm just curious i I think it's I mean, I think it's really important that um, that people, you know, are mindful of how much they can can take on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think that the the kind of mentality of just you know more 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 and just do it all is not uh, necessarily healthy. Mm-hmm. But that said, um, I I don't think that there's any reason that someone you know, in terms of what you learn or what you gain from licensure and what you contribute as an educator, that that those things aren't um, mutually exclusive, that you mm-hmm. or or like it, codependent, I should say. Yeah. So you have to have a license in order to start teaching. Um, so I think, um, and I think they're also opportunities if you're really interested in teaching to go to your firm and say I want to do this and I want to cut back my hours to to do it you know and I think some firms uh, hopefully some firms will be supportive and realize that that's that's a a good thing for you and for your uh, career advancement so I think that there are different models other firms might you know, when people might feel like they can actually um, teach and continue to, to put the same time in. Other uh, faculty that I know actually, you know, maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, 80% employees, you know, for their firm. And then they, they teach uh, in addition to that, mm-hmm. uh, maybe pursuing licensure at the same time. And, and those could actually... I mean, ha- being in the academic environment and practicing and pursuing licensure could create a really supportive community of people and mentors to help you get through. So I don't think there is a, a, a single answer to that. Um, if you want to teach full time, and I just want to say this for any of your listeners that don't know the kind of requirements often, um, and you have to look at specific, you know, job uh, advertisements to confirm, but often a master of architecture degree or a graduate degree in architecture is considered the terminal degree. Mm -hmm. Um, So that master's degree and licensure 
are often all the credentials that are necessary to get a full-time uh, academic position. So I have a Master of Architecture and I'm licensed. And that was, well, for, for the areas that I was teaching in, those were the desired credentials. So a PhD in architecture um, is most often directed in areas of history and theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for those faculty, um, that becomes uh, a necessary or could be a necessary credential. But you don't need a PhD in architecture in order to uh, be a full-time academic. And it is more common for architecture faculty, even full-time, to have a, the credential of a master's and sometimes uh, licensure, but not always. Mm-hmm. So um, I think, you know, when I learned that, I was also surprised. And it was yeah. probably, you know, years after I got my master's that someone said, oh, that's, you know, that's the only credential, like you have the educational credential that you need to teach. And I said, I didn't know that, but that's yeah. good to know. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, even people outside of architecture, like, will be like, well, if you want to teach, you need a PhD, right? Because I think that is common in other industries. But then, yeah, I I also recently found out you just need a master's as well, which uh, I think, yeah, a lot of our listeners probably don't know that you don't need a PhD to do that. So, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually told when I, in undergrad, when I was thinking about grad school, you know, I talked to some of my mentors and floated the idea of like just going straight into academia like not even practicing or maybe practicing for a couple of years but I don't even think I was thinking of getting licensed I was like maybe I'll just become a professor like tenure just do that (laughs) and they I was told that I would have to get a PhD probably from an Ivy League and I was like okay bye (laughs) I don't think I can do that yeah (laughs) yeah so that that I mean, it, it's just not true. It is, there's a re- really weird statistic in architecture. I don't know the number, but a very, very high percentage of faculty have gone uh, to Ivy League schools. And I, I think that that is also something that should be questioned and challenged because it, it means that our, um, just such a small group of educators yeah. are educating future educators and With just the same as similar a background. That's so yeah. true. I never thought about that. Um, and, and so that's, wow. that's something, I don't know that that exists in other countries, but I think that's something in the United States that we as a discipline may want to, to challenge. So, you know, I think people um, that have, you know, strong credentials and, you know, sincere interest in teaching should look to, to teach regardless mm-hmm. of whether or not you've gone to an Ivy League school. And I think those of us in academia who are in a position to hire, uh, you know, or sit on the committees that hire uh, faculty need to be open to hiring and not even open. I think we need to, to actively uh, recruit and diversify the schools from which our faculty come because, you know, if we're if diversity breeds innovation in every way, then actually um, bringing faculty from schools, you know, there are over a hundred professional schools in the United States in, in architecture. Um, so we should have, in theory, 
you know, all of those schools should should be graduating, you know, future licensed architects, future architects that may not be licensed, and educators. Like, I mean, we should have the whole spectrum coming from all of our schools. So um, that's true uh, statistically, but I don't know that we should continue to perpetuate that pattern mm-hmm. of educators coming from Ivy League schools. And there may be a handful of other schools you know, that are, that are in that list, but it's a very small group of schools, That's um, so true. especially yeah. with full-time educators. And I, I, I personally, I find that highly problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I totally agree. I, that just blew my mind. Yeah. I was like, that's so true. I think it's like, it's something that you internalize that you're like, well, you have to go to an Ivy well, League school. Well, in undergrad, teach. you're like, oh, those are just the best schools. And that's probably where the best you know, degrees are, and these professors are so smart and beyond mm-hmm. any of my capabilities. <laughs> so it's just very intimidating, I think, in undergrad, especially. But yeah, but but I, I I'm just gonna throw something out there for us all to think about for a moment. If the same, let's just call them dozen schools, are putting out the faculty for all of the schools then wouldn't the quality of education in the schools be fairly similar? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because the educators if all doing have their job, right? similar <laughs> backgrounds, right? Of course, there are other things, you know, there are certainly uh, resource differences between, you know, certain schools that have really large endowments, right, mm-hmm. that, that create opportunities. But in, if we're just thinking about instruction and You know, if you go to these academic conferences, most of them are colleagues that have come from like these same schools, right? And they're doing uh, very similar things, right? In different contexts and different places and different, you know, there there are differences between the schools, but I don't know how qualitative those differences are to say that we can really, that we really have uh, I don't believe that we have the kind of hierarchy in quality of education that is uh, commonly that commonly held belief that you know certain schools are just that much better. Yeah, right. I I actually I mean I, I when I think about it, you know, if my classmates from Penn and you know like all these schools, you know, some of us have become educators and we're you know, teaching in schools around the country, in some cases around the world, right? We have a similar background. Mm-hmm. So why would we then think that someone from Georgia Tech, for example, to use our alma mater, isn't qualified to become an educator as well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I and we were taught by people that went to the schools that they want to hire from but they won't hire people that they taught. <laughs> yeah, wow. exactly. Really so, I mean, I just yeah. I just don't believe that to be true. I think it is tradition, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, now um, back at loves. my, we love tradition. <laughs> you know, I'm back at my alma mater, one of the, you know, an early school in architecture, right? So we have these schools, the Ivies, what do they have? you know, what really distinguishes them is their, their age and, and in most cases their endowments, mm-hmm. right? But 
other than that, right, they're actually very similar. So they were the first kind of educators because they were early, you know, had programs. They have the the older programs. Um, But there are a lot of programs now, really excellent programs. Yeah. That, that we can actually pull from uh, for educators. So personally, I think we need to actively recruit, just like when we think about, you know, getting, you know, uh, racial diversity. We need to actively recruit people of color. We need to actively uh, recruit people from all schools mm-hmm. to consider education as a path. And I, I think that that would Intuitively, I think that that would increase the quality of education and it would also begin to maybe challenge some of the norms that that should be challenged. Right. Um, Yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think we might have time for one more question. Well, okay, we've we've talked a lot about like the future and what we want to change. Um, but I guess since you're actively in academia right now, um, we've had some conversations with students and in and, and the podcast and people we know in school right now about some of the recent kind of changes in the school, even in the last two, three years. Um, so we wanted to ask you what you're seeing in specifically like studio culture and just like the aside from the actual um content that's being taught, but everything else around um, studio in the last couple of years, what have you seen that's been changing? What are the trends and what are you, you think it's, what direction you think it's going in terms of mental health and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think um, an excellent question. And uh, for sure, um, you know, the, the crisis of the pandemic, the kind of uh, increased um, social awareness of, of racial inequities, um, the convergence of these kind of crises has impacted all of our lives and including, you know, um, the lives of, of architecture students. And I do think that there is uh, growing awareness of the need to address the um, harmful aspects of architecture studio uh, and on students' mental health. And, you know, the other thing that, you know, our, our students are coming to us differently too, um, you know, just in terms of mental health in general, you know, the students that are entering our classrooms have challenges, um, are confronting challenges in their lives that I think are, are really um, difficult. Um, you know, social media has brought a whole um, host of, of mental health challenges to younger generations of studio of students that I didn't have to deal with because I didn't know what my friends were doing to, yeah. <laughs> to, you know, kind of, I didn't have that kind of social um, pressure in my life every day. And so when we think about the architecture studio um, there and the social pressure of like comparison uh, to your peers and others, you know, there are a lot of kind of compounding effects 
just in society and in architecture school that we can't ignore. And I think, you know, most architecture educators that I talk to um, are aware of it. And I think there is a, a commitment to, to, um, to really prioritizing the health of our students, both physical and mental, over anything else. Um, what I'd like to see is also um, faculty uh, acknowledging that the ways that we were educated, meaning the kind of uh, all-night culture, you know, the the idea of um, personal sacrifice being a badge of honor, I would like us to to put that badge away <laughs> and realize that those were actually really unhealthy practices that should um, actively combat. Like we need to, it's not enough just to not talk about the all-nighters that you may have had. By the way, I had no all-nighters in grad school and I am, that is my badge of honor is yes. that I got a good night's sleep um, yep. for my graduate education. That's more um, impressive than having <laughs> yeah. all-nighters. I don't think, did you, Maria? No, I, no. I think 2 a.m. was my cutoff. Yeah. It's like, I think I did one but I was not happy about it. And I was so mad that it had to happen. I did not want it to be a thing. I was not proud. (laughs) I mean, I think, I think that we, we should be proud of taking care of ourselves Mm -hmm. and prioritizing, you know, our own mental and physical well-being. Like why, why should we, why should self-sacrifice be a badge of honor or anything to, to, you know, to kind of, uh, Mm -hmm. to, to, to boast about. Um, I don't think that it should. Um, The other thing that, you know, this disruption of the pandemic to in-person instruction, you know, like never waste a crisis. And I think that we are still in the process of figuring out what is that going to mean, you know, for architecture education going forward. And one thing that we've learned is that you can teach architecture um, through an online uh, platform. Like it's possible. I'm not saying that it's ideal, but it's possible to do that. So, you know, this idea of like the physical studio being so um, important and and uh, essential even to architecture education, I think that that myth, right, has been successfully challenged. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, well, if it isn't the physical space, you know, and it really is the kind of academic community and peer critique, well, how can you create that in a way that still takes advantage of, you know, some of the best things that we had during the pandemic? So teaching like a studio, one of the great things was that students were able to share screen and faculty were able to you know, draw on those drawings, right? And then the student can have, or sketch ideas. There was a very kind of interactive uh, nature to uh, online uh, teaching that I think a lot of people were surprised by that mm-hmm. the technology allowed for that, for, for sketching and for kind of sharing drawings at a scale, right? That everyone uh, could see them. Yeah. So how do we leverage um, those tools? but also maintain the kind of personal connection and the, um, the unstructured interactions that I think were uh, maybe part of what we were uh, attributing to like the kind of power of studio culture. Mm-hmm. So 
there are some social relationships, I think, that are uh, cultivated through in-person, you know, contact mm-hmm. that, you know, we all missed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're, we're really um, challenging for everyone. But it's kind of also the idea that, that students need to, to be like in an architecture student studio, even until 2 a.m., well, is that actually necessary? Right. So um, I, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to predict exactly where these uh, lessons of the kind of, you know, at least that, that crisis of all the schools having to, to shut down, where that's going to take us. Um, but one thing that I'm trying to do in my own uh, teaching is to not try to return to some kind of predetermined normalcy, Mm -hmm. but to continue to hold the experiences of teaching, you know, remotely for a year in my consciousness Mm -hmm. and to challenge, you know, and inform what I'm doing in the future by, you know, what I'm taking with me from from that really intensely challenging uh, period of time. I think the other piece of that is just, you know, um, we're contending with, well, what does architecture uh, contribute to society? And, you know, when we look at things like the murder of George Floyd, and we look at, you know, just um, neighborhoods and safety, and, you know, if, if architects are, are called to protect the health, safety, and welfare of the community, right, like that is, that's the reason why, we, we uh, manage, right, mm-hmm. and restrict the use of the word architect because we're protecting the safety of the, the, the public, right? Yeah. Health, safety, and welfare. Like, we've heard it. Um, so, but then you see, you know, the, the state of our country, the state of the world. I believe that we have a moral and a social responsibility to address that in our way, not, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about, you know, activism, although I'm not discouraging that, but I'm saying professionally, we have a responsibility. So the way that I teach the content, our histories, the way that we begin to um, understand the kind of social context of pro, uh, our, our projects and, and programs, the way that they might reinforce certain power hierarchies, uh, racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, right, sexual identity, all of these things, right, are actually, like, architecture is a cultural construct, right? We're, yeah. So we participate in that in ways that are conscious and subconscious. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to confront our um, responsibility professionally, to um, either, I mean, there's there's no neutral position when it comes to like justice, right? Either you're advancing justice and that takes action. That takes departure from social norms. That takes mm-hmm. um, uh, energy, right? Directed towards a kind of justice uh, lens. Or if you're just not, paying attention to it and not actually actively seeking it, you're perpetuating injustice Mm -hmm. because the, the, the 
thrust of society we know is towards uh, a power structure right, that actually perpetuates the same kinds of um, gender hierarchy, you know, uh, that privileges uh, heterosexuality, that uh, that also, you know, uh, supports our kind of racial hierarchies. Like that's what, that's what mm-hmm. our, the cultural norms are mm-hmm. in the United States and through much of the world, right? So if we're not actually actively working to dismantle those systems, that structural racism, we're actually perpetuating it, mm-hmm. you know, even if it is subconsciously. So we can't ignore uh, that context, and we have to uh, consider uh, how our, our pedagogies and our uh, classrooms, our studios, our seminars, are um, the content of them, and also the ways that we're teaching and our, our students' uh, mental and physical well-being. And you know, it's a lot, but. <laughs> But actually, for me, it's a it's a motivation to continue to do uh, the work that I yeah. that I'm doing, the work that I love, um, because I don't I can't imagine doing kind of anything else. Yeah, I think there's so many things you touched on that are you know so important that I think breaking the mold of what architecture always has been and kind of repetitively has been for years, whether that's what we're learning in our art history classes being just focused on Europe or whether it's our studio projects only focusing on what the professor wants and you can tell it's what they want. And a lot of the time it's the same project every year and it's not addressing so many of the things you touched on, you know, like we're living in a world where it's like so many things are going on and it's like, we cannot ignore that. And especially Mm -hmm. in the educational lens and, this generation that's growing up in this, like growing up in such a tumultuous time, like that they're just going to shut off during school. Like none of this stuff is happening. I'm just going to build my, I don't know. I'm trying to think like sanctuary garden or something like, you know, like (laughs) museum, yeah, my museum to address art or, you know, modern art museum. Yeah, exactly. And I do feel optimistic about it. As you were saying, like and Maria and I have noticed as well, that studios have taken a shift for sure. Like I, We've been very impressed by some of the content that's been coming out the last couple of years. Uh, we think the curriculum has changed. The professors have, not every professor, but a lot of professors have kind of acknowledged that they need to incorporate more current issues and, you know, get the students, uh, I guess they could see how the students could, architecture could mold what's around you. And um, I think that's an exciting thing and a, definitely a heavy lift. And, um, but I think just, vocally, you know, just communicating it to your students, talking about it is a good first step and, you know, creating, whether it's a studio project around it or a lecture around it. Um, I think that's a good direction because yeah, and architecture it, loves tradition. So go ahead. Yeah. But it's like, I mean, if you think about architecture, like the stuff we study of like the history of architecture, it has always responded or there was always like a, a shift that architecture tried to respond to what was happening currently and then it and then it took it a different direction and then it did it again and then like why like this is the moment like (laughs) we need to make that shift because there's an incredible like change happening in our society in the last few years that like we can't just keep doing the same thing and and it's kind of ironic that we just we study all of these movements that shifted the norm and now we can't we can't shift the norm anymore (laughs) like we're stuck with this but I think that 
that's that's like a, a paradox that we're like in the middle of now and i think that a lot of schools are adapting and hopefully it's like a countrywide you know worldwide movement that starts to question what we're studying what we're where how we how we're moving forward from this because no one's forgetting about this and it, i remember like after mo- like the rough part of the like the first year this year and a half of the pandemic happened i got really frustrated whenever i would maybe like interview for a job or have a conversation with like a coworker about something that like was completely ignoring everything we just went through as if like you didn't suffer i didn't suffer no one suffered it's fine like we're just moving on turn the page let's uh work on this project pretend everything is fine <laughs> so yeah. i think it's like we need to address what we all went through like that's i, I don't know yeah. i think yeah. architecture needs to respond to society and i think like what i'm before. hearing you say maria that's really important is how do we sustain how do we sustain these changes so they don't become you know, a kind of, oh, we're just kind of tapping into, you mm-hmm. know, the collective conscious of the world, but we're actually looking to um, to make meaningful changes in our curriculum and sustain them over time. And, you know, I think that is the bigger challenge because there is, you know, I mean, this, the pandemic, everything that we've been through has been this collective trauma. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's kind of almost other than the really, really young, right? Everyone will have some memory of the ways that their lives were were disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a huge opportunity for us to kind of tap into this shared uh, experience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like all of the things, all of the differences that we have, we all have this shared experience of, of this period of, of time. But as, you know, we also, we can't stay in this kind of state of, of just heightened anxiety, yeah. right? Yeah. That's also not healthy, right? So right. there is this, this need, right? This metaphysical need to just, you know, move on. But how do we do so in a way that is productive and that acknowledges, you know, where we are, but does something about it? And I think if you don't know what to do, then you're uh, more prone to just say, I just let me just live my life. Right. So as an educator, part of my uh, job, my responsibility is to equip this generation with students and those that come uh, afterwards with tools so that they can actively, you know, uh, address the issues that were the source of, of all of our anxiety. Um, because otherwise, if I don't have the tools, I think I'm much more likely to say, okay, so what's the project? <laughs> let's, <laughs> like, yeah. let's move on, right? Yeah. Because, because it's only like the active work that helps me feel productive. And mm-hmm. if I'm not feeling productive, I'm just feeling stressed, yeah. right? Addressing racial justice is not about shame or blame, right? No one, like guilt is not heritable, right? So if someone is white, like they don't need to feel guilty, right? About, about you know, they're not personally liable, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. it's about how do we, how do we uh, move forward, right? With the structure 
groups and systems, you know, that exist within society today. But people need to be educated in the ways that we can actually um, take a next step. And the step that we take tomorrow isn't going to be good enough a year from now. And the step that we take a year from now isn't going to be good enough five years from now because there's a next step. There's always a next step. But we need to, to contend with, well, what are our next steps as architects? Right? What are our next steps um, professionally to address our history? Um, and, and I think educators, you know, really, uh, we bear that responsibility, you know, to equip students uh, with those skills. And as yeah. like traumatic as a pandemic was, it's like, what can we take away from that, that almost not even like the silver lining, but almost like what, like the virtual world, like what that brought into studio, what that did for mental health, what good things can we take out of the pandemic? And even, you know, translating to the working world, we're in firms right now where there's like a level of flexibility that I couldn't even imagine even, you know, five years ago, the, the idea that if you need to work from home that day, no one is going to bat an eye, like that was never... I think like ever and, it, the, and also the barrier that architecture can exist digitally and virtually and it should because that's the future and like mm-hmm. our resistance to that was just so not productive the more I think about that I'm like you're resisting the 21st century like this is what yeah. it is this is what this new generation is super savvy online like why are you this could have happened before thing. the pandemic like oh, yeah, yeah, for sure yeah. Yeah. I mean it happened within it. two weeks Right. Like, I mean, we were or or even less. I mean, we were we were in virtual classrooms. We were um, giving, you know, uh, both synchronous and asynchronous lectures. We were critting. I mean, all of the technology existed and we we just had to like start using it like (laughs) when you don't immediately got to dive in and. It's yeah. crazy because they're like, we actually didn't see any drop in productivity at all. Actually, we had our best year ever. And it's like something like, it's like, wow, you realize that people, architects of all people are not slackers. Like, you know, like if they're working at home, they're working. Like if anything, they're working more because the boundaries are gone. So <laughs> it's just like the the level of trust and stuff also that, yeah, but I, I'm feeling optimistic, I think, about the direction that we're going towards, you know, mental health. And also, like, as you were saying, like, some some schools and professors like really using this opportunity to to change their curriculum and stuff so yeah for sure well this is very inspiring (laughs) i want to go teach now (laughs) (laughs) i feel very motivated inspired yes (laughs) awesome well you know i mean i actually think that if i do nothing else like if students don't retain anything from any of my classrooms, if they can leave inspired, I'll take it, you know, like I'll take it because, Mm -hmm. um, it, I think education isn't so much about like my having knowledge and then, you know, kind of depositing it into my students, but it's actually, uh, about self-empowerment, right. And giving students the confidence to, um, really, uh, utilize the skills that they have within them, right? I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not creating any of that. Yeah. So um, I, I hope that we can all um, be inspired and, and um, kind of go and, and do the work that only we can do because we all were, we all have all of our unique experiences and our backgrounds, right? They position us to do something 
that no one else can do. Mm-hmm. And when you find that thing, right, that I can do that no one else can do, that is that is ultimately so inspiring. So um, I'm 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 inspired by this conversation uh, <laughs> with both of you early on a Sunday morning, and I I really appreciate the invitation uh, for yeah. you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank, no, thank you. you. Yeah, as we already mentioned, we're very inspired. And I think our listeners are going to gain so much from this conversation. It's jam packed, literally like every minute with uh, takeaways. And um, we covered a lot of ground also. So yeah, thank you so much for, um, you know, spending your Sunday morning with us. We appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will too. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, and also don't forget to follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at Open Plan Podcast. And be sure to leave us a nice rating or review if you haven't. Thanks, guys. See you on the next one. Bye.